John Stott once said, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus of Nazareth. Friends, how is the crucifixion of a man named Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago impacted your life and my life? How much is this historical event and the good news it claims to bring sinners all around the world, how has this event and this message brought good news into our individual lives? To that same end, how has that historical event and this good news touched down into our very own local churches and transformed who we are, who we love, how we minister, and what purpose we live for today. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is a crossroads for the souls of men to examine their lives by. Let me say that again. The cross of Jesus Christ is a crossroads for the souls of men to examine their lives by. That's because the cross is a heart-exposing crossroads where a sinner's faith in God or unbelief towards God gets exposed. It gets revealed. It gets discovered. It gets found out. In other words, how we respond to this event and its message is the dividing line that separates the sheep from the goats, Christians and non-Christians. The cross of Jesus Christ is also a historical fact. It's not fiction or a make-believe story. It happened at a point in human history outside the city gates of Jerusalem around A.D. 33. And the events that occurred on that gruesome and grotesque Friday continues to be talked about, read about, written about, and sung about among millions and millions and millions of people all around the world, even in 2023. Have you ever pondered that? When people ask you, how was your week this past week? And if you're like me, you know, I got to remember what I did. How is it that something nearly 2,000 years ago is talked about, read about, written about, and sung about all around the globe amongst 7 billion people? How is it still going on today? Why is an event that seems so awful to remember about a man hanging on a tree still on the forefront of our minds at CCBC? The Apostle Paul answered that question in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, do you know what that means? That means the cross of Jesus Christ is far more important than things like the World Cup, the Super Bowl, the Olympics, and the College Football National Championship combined. The cross of Jesus Christ is far more significant to world history than world wars, technology and medical advancements, communication enhancements, and all other human inventions and achievements combined throughout human history. It shouldn't surprise us then that the cross of Jesus Christ is infinitely more significant than a mere national holiday like the 4th of July or Thanksgiving. It's far more significant than simply pondering to consider it during just one Easter weekend a year. The cross of Jesus Christ and its message is far more important than just another humanitarian hero we read about in a grade school textbook. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is far more important than you and I living our best life now. It's better than us getting every desire we've ever wanted in this life. Augustine said, the cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached his love 
to the world. Friends, knowing and receiving the perfect and precious love of Christ is a constant love that no one can match. No spouse, no child, no boyfriend or girlfriend, no amount of money, good health, or fame can touch the benefits and blessings of being constantly, continuously, and forever loved and kept by Jesus Christ. I mean, the New Testament was written by a former religious terrorist who persecuted Christians who believed in this message. That man was Paul, and he was converted when he heard this amazing mercy and grace through Jesus. And friends, he boasts all over the New Testament of how much the cross meant to him. Listen to Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So whether we are young or old, middle-aged, or on the back nine of living life, whether we are a boy or girl, man or woman, single, married, divorced, or widowed, whether we are enjoying life, content in life, or we're barely making it in this life, make no mistake about it. Put this following statement. Cement it on your mind until it's enthroned with conviction on your heart. The events surrounding the cross of Jesus Christ is the most important event and the most important message this world has ever witnessed with their eyes or heard with their ears. Author Jerry Bridges once said, the gospel in which the cross of Christ is central is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Yet, we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. So, brothers and sisters, if we lack joy, motivation, vigor, endurance, and motivation in the Christian life, maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe. Just maybe. This could be God's way gently prodding us this morning prodding us to draw nearer to Christ by staring closer at the cross of Christ. Are you ready? If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 497 and 498. If you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can use that and take that Bible with you as a gift from our church to you. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark on and off now for the last two years. This morning, we have the great privilege to meditate and read upon the last day of our Lord's life on earth. The last day where we'll see Jesus take his last breath. Mark 15, starting in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for, for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? 
What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with a sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it him to drink, saying, wait, wait, let's, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have two main points that will serve as headings for our outline. Then I'll conclude our time briefly at the end thinking about how true Christians and true churches respond to the cross of Christ. Point number one, look at how Jesus endured hostility from sinners without sinning in return. Look at how Jesus endured hostility from sinners without sinning in return. Point number two, see how Jesus was crucified by the hands of sinners and was crushed by the will of God. See how Jesus was crucified by the hands of sinners 
and was crushed by the will of God. Let's look at that first point together. Look at how Jesus endured hostility from sinners without sinning in return. So what did Jesus have to endure? What did he have to bear up? What did he have to persevere under when he faced hostility from those who did not like him? Well, over the last several chapters in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus take on opposition after opposition. Ever since he showed up in Jerusalem back in Mark 11 for the Passover and the week-long feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, his Passion Week was filled, not with a honeymoon, but with pushback after pushback from his opponents. His opponents tried to trip him and trap him in theological discussions. Other times, they tried to put him in a situation where they could pit him against the crowd by looking like a rebel against Rome or an incompetent rabbi who should be ignored and rejected. Up until this point, the persecution against Jesus began somewhat mild, at least compared to what we'll read about today. Then in Mark chapter 14, Jesus has transformed the Jewish Passover feast into a meal about himself, a meal that would be ordained by Jesus and commemorated by his disciples in memory of him. Uh, We know that today, more commonly known as the Lord's Supper, or the table of the Lord, or communion. At that meal, he informed his disciples that one of them would betray him, and all of them would deny him, including Peter, the outspoken preacher of them all, who emphatically declared that he would never do such a thing. But in a few short hours, he did just that. What Jesus prophesied came true. After the meal, he reached the Garden of Gethsemane. After falling down on his knees and even his face, sweating drops of blood, pouring out tears of anxiety and fear, Jesus was beginning to enter into the darkest hour of his life. Yet, even in his darkest and lowest moment, he continued to submit his will to the Father's will, which included the obedience required to drink the cup of his Father's wrath for hell-deserving sinners like us. As we saw last week in our passage, he was eventually unjustly seized and arrested by his opponents, mocked and made fun of, jeered at and made light of. But then after a face plan of failure from his opponents, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't get any testimonies to stick. A bunch of hearsay and half-truths and lies, they just didn't line up. And so the most powerful man amongst the Sanhedrin decided to step in and speak up. That man was the Jewish priest at the time, the high priest, Caiaphas, who examined Jesus himself. Finally, after Jesus doesn't deny who he is and rightly declares himself to be the divine son of man who will one day return in the clouds to judge all of the earth, including the men that will crucify him, Caiaphas then charges Jesus with blasphemy. And thus the heat of persecution gets turned up and they take Jesus to a higher court of appeal under the Roman authorities, the authorities that would be led by the governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate's tenure extended from AD 26 to AD 37, and because the Jewish Sanhedrin alone could not unilaterally put Jesus to death, they appealed to Pilate, who had the authority to do so. And we can see this dark collusion, this twisted, corrupt collaboration there in verse 1. Look with me in Mark 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. What do we see here at the outset of the chapter? In what ways does Jesus continue to endure hostility from sinners? Well, Jesus continues enduring hostility through more false accusations, more unjust charges that were made against him. Look with me at verses 2 to 4. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Don't you see what's going on here? They are doing whatever they can to try to get Jesus killed. They're relentless. 
They continue to throw insult after insult. They're like baseballs coming 100 miles per hour in a batting cage with relentless baseballs coming at you. And in this passage, it's, it's coming at our Lord. Then in verses 6 to 14, the crowds now turned against Jesus. The crowds have been stirred up into a fierce frenzy. It's mayhem. It's utter madness. And they are now willing to see an actual convicted murderer exchanged for Jesus in order for Jesus to be crucified. According to verse 7, if you want to look down there, there's a man named Barabbas, not Barnabas. Barnabas is a good guy. Barabbas, he was a man that had been arrested for his involvement in a recent insurrection or a riot or a revolt, most likely against Rome. According to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, verse 16, Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. In other words, this dude was all over the nightly news. This guy was on FBI's most wanted list and already put behind bars. This wasn't some random lone wolf nobody that no one had ever heard of. This was a sin-loving, death-loving murderer who had some major red flags on his record. And of all people, this evil man was being advocated for by the people for him to be set free in order to have Jesus put to death. Friends, in essence, we see a people who are deeply self-deceived calling evil good and good evil. Friends, you know you're living in a depraved and devilish time when a cold-blooded murderer is exempt from justice while the innocent is being charged with the death penalty. In our world today, it's the cold-blooded murder of innocent children inside the womb, while many mothers unrepentantly and without regret, and sometimes even with prideful arrogance, go scot-free from being held accountable by the law. As of 2022, over 63 million abortions have occurred in the U.S. since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. And though Roe v. Wade has been overturned recently and delegated to the state level for those laws to be enforced, friends, the last 50 years is one massive black eye in American history. Hearing a statistic that over 63 million children have been murdered in the womb, friends, if that doesn't grieve us, if that doesn't anger us, that means something's wrong with us. Brothers and sisters, pray that we as Christians never become desensitized to evil in the world. Pray that we would never become desensitized, numb, indifferent, nonchalant to evil in the world. Romans 12, 9 is a great verse to think about on this. Romans 12, verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Friends, pray that we would not become so numb to such dark depravity in our own life that it's looked at as normal. Uh, parents, children pay attention to what makes mommy and daddy happy, what makes mom and dad sad, and what makes mom and dad angry. Well, parents, we have a mirror we got to put up, right? Do we love that which God loves? Do we get sad and grieved for the things that grieve the heart of God? Do we get angry at things that God is angry about? Friends, our children are watching. It's one of the strongest discipling tools. It's not by the family worship time or churches we attend by, but by children watching how we respond to what we see in the world. And friends, we should also pray for sensitive hearts and compassionate hearts from mothers and fathers who've had abortions but are now repentant and looking for mercy and hope in Christ. Friends, never, ever forget, there is always more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Uh, back to Mark 15. So what happens next to Pilate's decision? I mean, these people are mad. They want a murderer to go scot-free and an innocent man who is perfectly righteous to be crucified. Well, Pilate wants to maintain 
civil order. He, he wants to keep peace in the land. And though he can't find any evil committed by Jesus, he does what any two-faced coward would do to save face in order to save his job and his reputation. He sought to give the people what they wanted instead of doing what is righteous in the eyes of God. He sought to give the people what they wanted instead of doing what is righteous in the eyes of God. Look with me in verse 15. So Pilate, did you notice that next phrase there? Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Can't you just smell the stench of people pleasing in that statement? The stench of fearing man over God. Release for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Scourging or flogging is not a term we typically use in everyday vernacular now. Historically, though, it was an excruciating punishment. The victim was stripped of his clothes and bound to a post with his hands fastened above him. Sometimes he was thrown to the ground. Guards standing on either side of the victim would incessantly beat him with a whip made out of leather with pieces of lead and bone inserted into its ends. While the Jews only allowed 39 lashes, the Romans had no limit. The scourging lacerated and stripped the flesh, often exposing bones and entrails, One of its purposes was to shorten the duration of the crucifixion, but scourging was so brutal that some prisoners actually died before making it to the cross. Here in Mark 15, we read that Jesus was scourged. He was flogged, and then he was bruised and gashed and even further mocked by the Roman soldiers who took hold of him next. So what did these Roman soldiers do? I mean, think about it. Judas has betrayed him. The disciples have abandoned him. The Jewish Sanhedrin's arrested him. Pilate, or Caiaphas has pushed him off to Pilate. Now Pilate has now pushed him on to the Roman soldiers. What do they do with him? Well, they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak, verse 17 says. Then they stripped him of it after they were done mocking him, in verse 20, leaving him almost naked. The detail regarding the color purple was a color often associated with wealth or royalty, but that wasn't in any way to make Jesus feel better about himself. It was another form of mockery. Six times, did you notice in chapter 15? Six times. Jesus is referred to either questioned, described, or talked about as the king of the Jews. Verse 2, verse 9, verse 12, verse 18, verse 26, and verse 32. But when he was called the king of the Jews in Mark 15, it was usually in a pejorative sense, not in any way reverent or worshipful. In verses 17 and 18, they continue the humiliation by placing a crown of thorns over his head and sarcastically saluting to him. Then in verse 19, they struck him in the head with a reed, most likely a wooden staff or pole, all while continuing to spit on him as the Sanhedrin had in Mark 14, with the soldiers, possibly hundreds, are around him at this point, kneeling down in pretense, pretending to show him honor. Friends, when we read an account like this, do we just step back for a moment and ask the most obvious question? Why? I get Barabbas. I get a murderer who revolts against the most powerful empire at the time. I get that. But why did they hate Jesus so much? You see, after we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, the Jewish Sanhedrin despised Jesus. Listen. For his popularity among the crowds. They despised Jesus for how his teaching, his miracles, and his love was drawing people away from the old guard at the temple. You see, when the people were flocking in droves to this man who claimed to be the Messiah, they sensed their love for power and control slipping away from their grips. 
These men loved power and the praise of men, and so they viewed Jesus not as an ally, but as a direct threat to their idol. What was their idol? They loved themselves more than they loved God. They loved themselves more than they loved God. They were lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, lovers of power, lovers of praise of men, lovers of self, rather than the most important thing that should characterize our life, lovers of God. In our passage today, we're given a sneak peek, though, into even Pontius Pilate, the governor at the time, he perceives why they're so angry and venomous and aggressive and unreasonable with Jesus. When the crowds were begging for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified, Pilate's been watching for some time. He's probably been hearing through the grapevine about this Jesus claiming to be the king of the Jews. And Pontius Pilate, given an unusual keen discernment, he understands the motives why they want to do this. Look with me at Mark 15, verses 9 to 11. Mark 15, starting in verse 9. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of, say it together, envy, that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Envy. Envy was the root cause of their hatred towards Jesus. Jealousy. Raise your hand if you've ever been jealous before. What's envy? Envy is sinfully setting our affections on that which belongs to another. Envy is sinfully setting our affections on that which specifically belongs to another. Friends, confession time. Do you have envy in your heart this morning? Does the preacher who's preaching this text have envy in his heart this morning? Do you find yourself jealously coveting someone else's life experiences? Someone else's possessions? Someone else's retirement? Someone else's standard of living? Someone else's salary package at work? Are you envious of someone else's emotional resources? Their health? Their educational levels? Are you jealous of someone else's obedient children, their marriages, life stages, giftedness, intellectual abilities, social media platform, ministry influence, speaking gifts, singing abilities, or even physical beauty and attractiveness? If you or I do, friends, we've already broken the 10th commandment which forbids coveting anything that belongs to our neighbor. Love of the sins of envy, jealousy, and coveting is an unspoken cancer in the church. First, it's a sin against God. Let's call it what it is. It's not a mistake. It's not a personality trait. It's not a personality tick. It's not just simply how you were raised. It's not the environment we live in. No, it is a sin against God. It shows we aren't content and we're not thankful and we're not humbled by whatever and whomever God has given to us in our life. Envy is us telling God, your current allotment of generosity and grace in my life, God, isn't good enough. I'm missing out on something in life Ultimately, because of you. I distrust you, 
Lord. Friends, if that's our hearts, that's the same temptation Adam and Eve fell for in the Garden of Eden. They believed that God was somehow holding back from them, enjoying life to the fullest as image bearers of God. And they instead wanted to be like God by eating from the one tree that God told them not to. That is the envy that began in the garden. And it's the envy that sucks the life, joy, and peace and contentment out of so many people. Did you know that envy and jealousy, they are manifestations of a fallen world. They're manifestations of a corrupt society. They're manifestations of our sinful flesh. If you read Romans 1, verse 29, and Galatians 5, 21, you've got the depravity of a world being given over to sin and the sinfulness of our flesh in Galatians 5. Did you know what's butted up right next to jealousy in both of them? Violence and murder. Do you think that's by accident? Think for a moment the second problem with envy. It's a sin against our neighbor. It's a sin against our neighbor. Think back just a sample of the Old Testament. Do you remember Cain, the first child ever born? Grew up to be a murderer. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Why? Ultimately because God accepted Abel's sacrifice as pleasing and not his. Genesis 4, 1 John 3. Think of Joseph's brothers who wanted him left dead in a pit and sold into slavery because of all the dreams and blessings that he had from God through his father Jacob. They were deeply jealous of Joseph. Genesis 37, verse 11. Or think of King Saul. Once he discovered that David was now God's man in Israel as the next king, Saul spitefully was envious of David's popularity and success, and he wanted David dead. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Friends, even envy can show up in our hearts as early as kids. Kids, this is like truth time with Pastor Blake, okay? Just this past week, have you said something like this? That's not fair. I like that honesty, Carson. All right, so if you're adults in here, have you said out of your mouth or thought in your mind, that's not fair? Okay, if you didn't, talk to Carson. He'll tell you you have. Friends, as early as childhood, we look at our siblings, we look at our friends, and when they get a privilege or a blessing we don't, we stomp our feet and we get mad. You know what that's called? Envy. Call it what it is. Envy can show up in our churches. When someone doesn't get the recognition they want, but someone else does. Someone spends more time with a certain friend we wish would give us the time of day, but we don't get to. Or simply, watch this, we refuse to be happy in someone else's happiness. Friends, that's a part of our church covenant, right? We will rejoice at each other's happiness. That's not made up CCBC stuff. That's from Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Friends, envy doesn't want to be happy in other people's happiness. Envy makes us want to glory in people's sadness. It's twisted. If left unchecked, envy can spread seeds of division and disunity in the church. Listen, because where envy is thriving, Love is dying. Author Melissa Kruger warns us very well here about this temptation to envy or covet. Listen to what she says. Coveting is the antithesis of Christ's command to love your neighbor as yourself because our neighbor becomes our enemy simply by possessing what we desire. We cannot love well those whose lives or belongings we covet. Envy is a root heart issue that took place in the hearts of the chief priest. And friends, that same heart issue takes root in people like us too, right here in this 
building. So how did Jesus respond to his mockery? How did he respond to the hatred, the physical abuse, and listen, the envy that he was faced with from his opponents? How did he face it? Well, let me just give you a sample here. Verse 3, he answers Pilate's question, you have said so. Verse 5, we read again, but Jesus made no answer. Sounds like that silent strength again from last week's sermon. In verse 13, says that Jesus made no answer, that Pilate was raised. That was verse 5. Verse 13, Pilate even questioned what evil Jesus had actually even done. But once again, no one can find any evil in Jesus. Jesus endured hostility from sinners without sinning in return. So what happened next to Jesus? Verse 20 says, the way it ended, They led him out to crucify him, which leads to point number two. See how Jesus was crucified by the hands of sinners and was crushed by the will of God. In verse 22, they bring him out to a place outside the city gates, most likely in the shape of or resemblance of a skull, Golgotha or Golgotha, depending on how you were raised and who you've listened to. And there from the third hour, verse 25 reads, which is around 9 a.m., to the ninth hour, verse 33 reads, which was around 3 p.m., Jesus hung on that awful criminal's tree for approximately six hours. The mockery would continue even after he was hanging all those hours on the tree. He hung there as a public spectacle. They were casting lots, rolling the dice, basically, for who would take his garments. Thus, by their actions here and throughout the crucifixion theme, they were fulfilling prophecies all the way back to Psalm 22. For context, Greg read this earlier. Psalm 22 was written many years previously, way before the birth of Christ. And it begins with David feeling a sense of God-forsakenness. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2 reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. As the psalm continues, David then is reduced to scorn, and his trust is being mocked in the derision of his enemies. Psalm 22, 6 to 8. His threatening foes, he can't escape. Psalm 22, 12 and 13 and verse 16. His dehumanizing and extreme suffering has shown no sympathy by his opponents. Psalm 22, 14 and 15 and verse 17. And then they divide his last shreds of human dignity as though he was already dead and gone. Psalm 22, verse 18 reads, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here in Mark 15, we're not seeing Psalm 22 read at a Jewish synagogue Bible study. We're not seeing Psalm 22 discussed and talked about over a cup of coffee or a cup of tea by a lakeside somewhere. No, we're seeing not Psalm 22 read in Golgotha. We're seeing Psalm 22 fulfilled in Golgotha. And this time, it's not David speaking in poetic ways about a suffering in his life. It is speaking about David's greater son, who is suffering the worst torment a human being would ever suffer on this earth. Jesus would bleed, bruise, be dehumanized, scoffed at, and left to die all alone. In Mark 15, 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, basically like a narcotic effect, to reduce the pain, but Jesus did not take it. You might ask, why? Why would you not want something to relieve the pain, Jesus? Don't you remember what he prayed in the garden? I will drink the cup. I will drink the full fierce of God's wrath from the cup, and I will drink it down in full. In Mark 15, 32, they hang him on a cross to die. Get this, between two thieves that had been convicted, probably in the same insurrection that Barabbas was. And then, out of all people, 
These two men, depraved and darkened in their minds, these guilty and suffering criminals are reviling and taunting Jesus on his left and on his right. Imagine being at a funeral where people stand up and mock someone who has died and mock the family. I mean, at Jesus' very last moments, he's still being mocked and slandered and ridiculed by criminals. Crucifixion, friends, under the Romans was a horrifying form of death. Excruciatingly painful, prolonged, and socially degrading. A condemned man normally carried his own crossbeam to the site of crucifixion. For Jesus, his beating or his flogging was so brutal that he physically could not carry his own cross. Hence, verse 21, why they grabbed a man named Simon out of the crowd to carry the cross for him. According to the Roman statesman Cicero, crucifixion was, quote, the most cruel and horrifying punishment. A euphemism was given a name for that tree called the unlucky tree. If someone didn't die prior to crucifixion from the flogging, they typically typically died on the cross from asphyxiation, which is basically suffocation. A person would become too weary to keep pulling one's own frame up to the crossbeam, and the diaphragm was increasingly strained. Eventually, one would become unable to breathe. Death usually took several days, but for Jesus, it was just a few hours. But amidst the shame, amidst the physical abuse, amidst the ongoing mockery, the darkest hour of Jesus' soul had only just begun. It was not the flogging. It was not the mockery. It was not the being a public public spectacle in a city he loved. The most painful, the most darkest hour of our Lord's soul is when he uttered these loud words. Eluai, Eluai, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One scholar writes that what made crucifixions especially gruesome to watch were, quote, the screams of rage and pain, the wild curses and outbreaks of nameless despair of the unhappy victims. But friends, do not be mistaken for one moment. That was not the kind of cry Jesus uttered. It was way, way worse. Jesus was not an unhappy man with life. Yes, he was a man of sorrows, but he had perfect communion with his father. From eternity past, God the Father and God the Son were in complete harmony with one another. No disruption, only love, unity, peace, and fellowship. But at the cross, the Father did not cease loving the Son. For the triune God cannot be severed or cut off from his essence. It's an unbreakable chain from eternity past to eternity future. But for several hours, for a little while, the son's sense of the divine love from the father was suspended. It was intercepted by the sense of divine wrath and vengeance resting upon him. He had never, ever experienced any kind of disruption in the love relationship with his heavenly father until that moment. On the tree when Christ called out to God as my God. He wasn't calling out because God was absent. Christ called out to God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus had become the object of God's wrath, which he had never experienced before. Christ experienced an abandonment and a forsakenness when all he ever knew was love and communion with his Father. Christ was punished. He absorbed the justice of God towards sin, though he never committed one sin in his entire life. Friends, the Son of God experienced the horrors of damnation. He bore the weight of eternal punishment that we deserve. You see, at the cross, God did not flee the scene. God was very much present. But on that day, in order for sin to be punished, for sinners to be forgiven, for sinners to be justified, 
for sinners to be sanctified, for sinners to be glorified, for sinners to be cleansed, for sinners to be given the new birth, for sinners to be adopted in the kingdom of God, for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God, for sinners to have hope of eternal life. A perfect sacrifice for sin had to be offered. A perfect high priest to represent the people had to step forward. Christ said, get out of the way. Christ offered up himself without becoming sinful in God's sight. He became the sin bearer in the sight of God's wrath. Isaiah 53 is now being fulfilled in its fullest. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, the Jews are guilty for what they did to Jesus. Yes, the Romans are guilty for what they did to Jesus. But it was the will of God to crush his son. Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Philip Ryken has once said, if you want to know what God really thinks about sin and what he intends to do about it, look at Jesus rejected on the cross and listen to Jesus forsaken on the cross. God hates sin. God hates the sin of envy. God hates the sin of pride. God hates the sin of unbelief. Friends, he hates every sin. We might think that he only hates obvious sins who committed in public. No, friends, God hates hidden sins of hypocrisy too. You know what hypocrisy is, right? It's pretended holiness. It's a spiritual costume. It's a religious Halloween that millions and millions dress up for Every Lord's Day. It's outward holiness with a hidden rebellion to this God. This wrath-filled God. Michael Reeves humbly reminds us, it is usually easy to spot brazen sins such as murder, adultery, and theft. But hypocrisy by its very nature is a pretense making it hard to detect. Hypocrisy does not want to be identified for what it is. It poses and deceives to avoid discovery. Friends, it is a fool's errand to think we can run and hide from God. That's why it is so much better to come clean and get close to Jesus as fast as you can. To my non-Christian friend, do you see your sin placed on Jesus in this passage? Do you see the heinousness of your rebellion to God and that Jesus stood in the gap? He stood in your place. He drank the fierce, just wrath of God for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that is God's expression of his hatred towards you and your sin, but also his perfect love to save you from your sin? Aren't we familiar with that glorious promise? Let's hear it again. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, that is a glorious promise that is extended to all of us who would turn from our sins, our hidden hypocrisy, and our outward rebellion and trust in Jesus Christ alone to make us whole. Turn from your sins today and trust that Jesus did this for you.
Well, after some confusion over those who were wondering who on earth was Jesus crying out to in verses 35 to 36, we read some of the most sobering but life-giving verses in all of the Bible. Look with me in verses 37 to 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. Man, this got me in my quiet time this week. And breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. In three verses, we see a domino effect that would change human history forever. First, Jesus died. Jesus died. I don't know if you've ever seen someone die right in front of you, but it's a very sobering, a very humbling experience. People saw him take his last breath. He did not live a long life, but he lived a full one, and he never wasted a second. He gave it all away for his Father's glory and our eternal joy and good. Second, we see that now total access to God and complete pardon of our sin has been offered to all who trust him. Immediately, did you notice that? After he takes his last breath, the temple curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place was torn from top to bottom, torn in two. You might say, what does that have to do with us? This curtain, you can read more about in Exodus 26 and throughout the book of Hebrews, was symbolic to show how sinners could not enter into God's presence without a sacrifice and a qualified priest to do so on their behalf. Only the high priest with a sacrifice for his sin and the sins of the people could enter the most holy place, and that just once a year. But we read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and in other places how Jesus' death appeases God's holy wrath, and now there is no more curtain that separates sinners from the most holy place. Jesus has entered into heaven and presented his sacrifice to his heavenly father, and his father accepted the sacrifice. Listen to Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Friends, through Jesus, there's total access now to God. You don't need to go to some clergy or priests to pray to him. Run to him and be firm in your faith that there is no more wall, no more curtain that keeps us from this wonderful God. Jesus has brought that down through the death of his own flesh. That's some good stuff. Number three, we see an unlikely convert at the foot of the cross. We see an unlikely convert at the foot of the cross. Throughout Mark's gospel, we see so many of the Jews slow to believe, even as disciples are knuckleheads most of the time. Others reject Jesus outright. But you know who's got the best theology in all of the gospels? The demons. They, in Mark's gospel, declare that Jesus is the Son of God, quicker than most of the humans did. And guess who's saying it now? A man that literally assisted, watched, took part in the mockery, slander, and crucifixion of Jesus. It's a Roman centurion. It's a Gentile. And this man sees the last breath of our Lord. The temple is torn in two, and he sees Jesus for who he really is. He is the Son of God. Friends, is there anyone in your life that you've given up on believing God could save? Friends, never stop praying and evangelizing because God could allow us to die and then save them after we're dead and gone. It happened in the life of Christ on the cross and that centurion sitting right there 
The cross of Jesus Christ is a crossroads for the souls of men to examine their lives. Why? Friends, this is where unbelief and faith gets exposed. Many of the Jews in that exact moment scoffed. This one Gentile believed. Friends, many were present that day. This is why the cross is not fiction. We're going to do more of this next week on the resurrection, by the way. There were eyewitnesses to his suffering, eyewitnesses to his death, eyewitnesses to where he was buried. Consider again all the characters just mentioned in one chapter. The whole Jewish Sanhedrin's present. Pilate, the governor, is present. Barabbas, the murderer, set free in exchange for Jesus to be crucified. The onlooking crowds, those who pass by. The Roman soldiers, Simon of Cyrene, two thieves crucified next to him. The centurion who saw him as the son of God. Did you notice also there's also others who are watching from a distance? Those same women who ministered to Jesus and traveled with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. In verses 40 and 41, we see Mary Magdalene. We see Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph. We see Salome. We also see another man show up. Surprisingly, his name is Joseph of Arimathea, and he's among the Sanhedrin. He's been kind of a quiet disciple so far. And he steps up and he says, I want the body. I want the corpse. I want to prepare the burial site for Jesus. After preparing the tomb, he rolled the tomb against the entrance of the tomb. The tomb was sealed and Christ was buried. Friends, if the cross of Christ is a crossroads that we must examine our lives by, what does it look like to be a true follower of Jesus? If you're taking notes, here's three quick subpoints derived from a few people we see in this passage. Number one, true followers of Christ will carry their cross and follow Jesus no matter the cost. True followers of Christ will carry their cross and follow Jesus no matter the cost. Simon of Cyrene, we don't hear about him much at all in the Bible, but he gets picked. And he treasures Christ over comfort. Publicly and unashamed for Christ, he willingly denies himself puts to death self-preservation about what people will think of him, and he carries our Lord's cross for him. Number two, true followers of Christ will follow Jesus and serve him wherever he leads them. True followers of Christ will follow him and serve him no matter where he leads them. Did you notice the women described there? We'll talk more about this next week. It says they traveled and ministered to Jesus in Galilee. His basic circuit ministry. Guess where the women are now on his Via Della Rosa, on the path of his sufferings? They're there. They go from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. They go out to the city gates. They go up to Golgotha, and they even go all the way to the tomb. You know why they're doing that? They love Jesus. They want to be with Jesus. They want to be for Jesus. They want to be used by Jesus, whether they're in Galilee or Jerusalem. Friends, if you want to be a true follower of Christ, we must trust and follow him wherever he leads us. Sometimes our attitude should be, I don't care where I live. I just want to know Jesus is with me. That's what these women were like. Number three, true followers of Christ will take courageous acts of faith for the kingdom of God. True followers of Christ will take courageous acts of faith for the kingdom of God. A Joseph of Arimathea, with the help of God's spirit, he wants to do what's honorable in the sight of God. He wants to take the dead body of our Lord and honor him. How about true churches? What will true churches look like who are cross-centered churches? True churches who keep the cross of Christ centered in their ministries, and in their members' lives, listen, will be churches with sticking power. Think about it. We live in a day and age right now, a divorce culture, that you get tired of your spouse, swap them out for someone else. You get tired of your church because it's annoying, it doesn't meet all your preferences, you get your feelings hurt, swap them out and get another church. We live in a non-committed, wimpy, flaky, soft culture that has no concept of endurance anymore. When we think about the one, Jesus, who 
for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of God. You know what the writer of Hebrews says? Look to him when you're enduring hostility from sinners. Look to him when you're being disciplined by your heavenly father because he disciplines those whom he loves. When the going gets tough in marriage, you don't look for self-help books. You look to the cross. When parenting is taking tasks on you, you don't look for basically feel-good podcasts that just don't really help you long-term. You look to the cross. When things are hard in your church, you look to the cross. When you're diagnosed with a health condition that is really scary, you look to the cross. Jesus was forsaken so that we might be accepted. Whatever he ordains is right. He's proven it through his son who went to that tree. And his father's care, our father's care, is around us there. And he will help us so that we shall not fall. Henry Martin, missionary to India and Persia, he died when he was only 31 left us an example of what a cross-centered life looks like. In his journal in January of 1812, he wrote this, To all appearance, the present year will be more perilous than any I have seen. But if I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. Whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. Friends, this is a provocative statement. We are immortal until Christ's work for us to do is done. The writer of Hebrews says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friday at Golgotha happened. Jesus breathed his last. And he was buried. And he cried out on that cross in John 19.30, It is finished. Saturday happened, and there was a Sabbath day. There was silence, and there was immense sadness. But Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we have a great Savior, the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we pray that you would search our hearts of envy and pride and unbelief, Lord, we pray that we will look at the cross when life is hard, when sin is fierce, so that we might have endurance to run the race that Christ has ran before us. And Father, we pray even now that we will rejoice that we have the true and better, the one and only all the scriptures have been pointing to all along. Or may the cross be at the centerpiece of our lives and our church. In Jesus' name, amen.